You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I got to tell you something, people. This staying at home is, is making me go off the deep edge. I'm a, I'm a jeans-wearing guy, but for the last, what, five or six weeks, I've been wearing sweatpants. And all my life, I've always had my wallet in my front right pocket and my cell phone in my front left pocket. So this morning, I'm going out for the weekly uh, grocery shopping trip because, you know, I plan for the week and I go out. And for some reason, I put my phone in my right pocket. I walked around my place for no lie, at least five minutes. And it was driving me crazy because I'm like, I haven't been outside. I just played words with friends. And finally, I put my hand in my pocket. I'm like, oh, my phone's there. I'm losing it. Anyway, we have a great show today. My uh, guest is such a talented, such talented actor. He's a director. He's um. He started the legendary uh, Steppenwolf, one of the stars of the legendary Steppenwolf Theater Company in Chicago. And he's been mentioned by three guests that have referred to him. And one was D.B. Sweeney, one was Chris uh, Bauer, and one was Layla Robbins. And that's some really talented people to talking kudos to this gentleman. And that's how talented he is. And my guest is Terry Kinney. How you doing, Terry? Hey, I'm fine. Thanks for having me. No problem. So how how are you dealing with the whole stay at home? Are you are you going a little stir crazy? Well, yes. I mean, uh, I'm in Brooklyn, which is you know sort of uh, in the epicenter of uh, of the crisis, and uh, even going out for short walks can feel you know kind of perilous. Um, I'm lucky enough to have a small like back area that I can hang out in. I compete with the uh, bees, you know, for the space. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm occupying my time like everybody else by uh, catching up on uh, everybody else's art. Uh, you know, I watch a lot of Netflix movies and documentaries, and uh, I'm reading and uh, you know, trying to take care of my 16 year old son. It's a, it's all it's all good. It's a reset, and we probably needed one, uh, but we just didn't know it. Well, you know what I like about it, in all honesty, is, you know, I always I always like to cook at home for me and my wife. But now it's like, you know, people are finally, like, you know, I mean, our, you know, I'm, I'm 10 years younger than you. So our generation wasn't going to McDonald's all the time. Kids are so used to it right. that now they're actually getting homemade meals and they're probably loving it. And before they probably thought, oh, that's that's awful. Absolutely, yes. You know, I, I found myself getting far more creative in, in that respect. And uh, my son is a, is a good judge. You know, if he finishes it, <laughs> I know I've done well. Uh, but, yeah, I've been cooking good stuff. And, uh, you know, we also we're supporting our um, restaurants by ordering takeout and trying to be careful with the uh, packages as we bring them into the house, et cetera. But, but you know, so we still, we still have great, great restaurants in the vicinity to draw from in the takeout work. Now, you're staying at home, but you said, you know, and I talked to you briefly on uh, Facebook last week, uh, you said you were judging a, a film festival. How does that work? And what, I mean, how does it work when you're judging from a remote place? Well, um, I've been asked for some years to do the Tribeca Festival. I've got a really good relationship with those folks, and, um, and I've had films appear there. So uh, I've tried and never could find the time with my work schedule. And this year, I got cleared before the outbreak. 
uh, I, I've been working on a Netflix series, and um, and they cleared me for the uh, two-week period that was going to be the festival itself when I would be, you know, uh, needing to be there uh, with the other judges. So uh, so that, that was all in place when this happened. So this became, uh, they rebooted, and it became the first online festival in New York, at least. Uh, it was a very interesting process and it was a very uh difficult process because you're not watching in a theater with other people you know influencing the the, the cathartic effects whether or not it's funny etc it's just you and your screen and uh i found it challenging and i found myself watching everything a couple of times in order to give it a fair shake now, how would you classify yourself as a judge? Because you've done so much great work, and you know you have the background in theater and just all that. How is it? Is it harder for you to judge someone who's doing a really good acting job because you are a very good actor? That's a really good question. I I would be the last to know, <laughs> but um, as a director, I think I look for a certain uh, quality in an actor. You know, a freedom, a boldness, and that, you know, just comes with uh, their persona. So, yeah, I look for the same things here. I, I react like everybody else when I'm watching a movie. Something hits me, something gets to me, something reminds me of my childhood. I find something inordin inordinately funny. You know, I, uh, I, I just respond as a, an audience member uh, for the most part. And then the judging part, that's the difficult part for me because I tend to watch movies in a way that I want to take all the positive elements that I can with me. And the stuff that I don't like, I tend to leave behind. Uh, here I had to evaluate, uh, you know, score things. And I'm no fan of criticism. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm outspoken, uh, not a fan of criticism. And so I found it difficult when we started doing the uh, deliberations uh, because it felt like, oh, somebody has to lose. Right. That's not, that's not okay. <laughs> uh, but I did have my favorites, and I had, uh, you know, I had compromises I had to make with other people's favorites. So it was good to listen. It was good to collaborate. And like making art, the judging became a process where, different sensibilities came together to kind of uh, pick the winners. Now, at what age did you start getting interested in acting? Was it something that you started at a very young age or high school? Or when did you start? Uh, I, didn't, I didn't do a lot in high school. I was, um, I was mostly cross-country and track runner and, uh, you know, trained quite a bit to do that, so I did that for my first three years of high school. My junior year, I believe it was, I tried out, because I was in a, a choir, I had quite a high voice, singing voice, and I was in a rock band, and I sort of got recruited, and, um, and then I tried out for the musical. I didn't get a very big part, but I kind of got around the theater group, and I got the bug. So my senior year, in earnest, 
I started doing speech team and a few plays, and a musical and a, and a regular play. And then uh, went to Illinois State as a psychology major. I was trying to go to the University of Illinois, and uh, for various reasons, I, I just couldn't. So I ended up at Illinois State as a, as, a, as a psychology major. And my roommate, who was in the theater department, said, "Hey, they're giving they're giving out tuition waivers. You just got to do a two-minute audition." I uh, I did it on a dare. And I only remembered half a speech and then improv the rest, kicked a chair across the stage at the end of it because I was pissed at myself. And, uh, and they said, young man, you have the capacity for emotion. We're, you know, and they gave me a tuition waiver. And I said, well, okay, more fool you. Uh, but then I, this incredible, incredible faculty, this incredible student body that I locked into at Illinois State University, uh, Unbelievable array of talent there when I got there. Judith Ivey and, you know, eventually Lori Metcalf and, and uh, Jeff Perry and John Malkovich and the list goes on. That was the Stephen Theater basically came, came out there. So, so when when did you decide to start the Step Steppenwolf Theater Company? Is when you were just getting out of college or had you been acclimating you know, into the, the Chicago scene for a while? I, I was a. Uh, Finishing my junior year, I was in my junior year of college, and in came no, no, I guess I guess it was my sophomore year of college. Uh, in came a new freshman, who I just immediately zoned in on friendship wise. I was just like, I'm gonna know this kid. He seems so smart. He's very weird and you know, uh, intellectual and and quirky. It was Jeff Perry, and. Um, and we started hanging out nonstop and talking about projects. And he had this incredible uh, freedom at, at Illinois State to create in this sort of black box space on weekends. Uh, just nonstop. You could just put up a one act and show it to people. And it was it was a lot of a lot of freedom as as, as young actors. So Jeff said, "Would you like to come to Highland Park with?" A friend of mine who was uh, Gary Sinise, and I hadn't met him. And I, uh, I said, "Where will I, where will I stay?" And he said, "We'll stay in my basement." You know, my parents. I told them, and they're okay with it. And so I lived. I went there, stayed in his basement, met Gary, and we did Rosencrantz and Guildenstern's Dead. And we pledged after that production that we would go draft other actors as many as we could bring back but when we graduated. And uh, so, so that, that's kind of how, how it started. We, we tried to get a lot of actors to come up there and, and join this ensemble, but we, we eventually were nine. We were nine people. Now, how did you choose the shows you were going to do at that point? Was it all a, a, a you know, collaborative, saying, okay, I want to do this or I want to do that? Or how did you choose the material in the beginning? very natural artistic director for us. He was he was someone that was a really fine director, actor. He was uh, very musical. He could do he could do anything and he was he was someone that we kind of put in leadership. We didn't want to be an utter proletariat, although our company meetings were a thing to behold. Um, but um, 
but we did all have ideas, and a lot of them came from shows we'd done in college. We we had a propensity for Lanford Wilson plays and uh, Leonard Melfi, and we called them. You know, they were all those one acts from the late '60s and early '70s. You know, we called them the axe murderer plays, <laughs> and uh, and uh, you know, pincher one acts, etc. So we started with a slate of four one acts in repertory. That was high highly ambitious and we didn't really know what we were getting into but we did it anyway and two of them two of the four really kind of took off you know that the newspapers came and wrote about us and you know we were we were noticed as we are now what was the theater scene like in chicago at that time you know everyone knows how the you know improv was in chicago and stuff like that but what was the theater scene like on the verge of being a burgeoning theater uh, town. Uh, it always had that Chicago vibe to it. Um, and Second City was a very prevalent style when we got there. Now, they, there was Wisdom Bridge that Bob Young, Bob Balls, was running at the time. And, um, and there was organic theater. And we would go see as much as we could. And we felt very much like we had something new to bring to the theaters. But we were also a bunch of very cocky kids. So we, we thought, well, we're going to base our brand of theater on the kind of knock-down-the-fourth-wall ethic of a John Cassavetes movie rather than basing it on other types of theater that we've seen and done. So we tried to make it very dangerous. It spilled into the audience quite often. It was, uh, it was very in-your-face, what we were trying to do. And it just kind of came naturally. There was a group sensibility that was unspoken. We all liked doing it. We all liked the idea of it. And so it wasn't so much as of, of a philosophy as a sort of a communal understanding that we all had. This is how we do it. Now, when did this theater start getting more popular? I mean, you know, you, you started off and the newspapers are writing about it. But when do you really start getting traction where people are like, hey, man, this is something we got to go check out? Yeah. Like I said, we were in Highland Park. And even if I admit it, our Highland Park uh, supporters were tremendous, but the general public, the people that would go to theater in Chicago wouldn't come to their own backyard and see this group of kids until other people thought it's okay to do so. So we, we languished for a few years. Uh, we, we performed, sometimes we would go ask the two people in the audience if they wanted us to do it. We'd come out and say, do you guys want us to do the show? We'll do it. You know, we, we'd love to do it for you. And um, it, it, sometimes they'd come, sure, but sometimes they'd say, yeah, we'll, we'll come back when there's other people here. And so we, we, were, we were hungry for an audience. In 78, I believe it was, Stephen Schachter and Peter Schneider from um, the St. Nicholas Theater Company asked us to bring these two one acts that were our opening salvo, you know. Uh, it was uh, Indian Wants the Bronx and, and Birdbath, I think it was, um, by Leonard Melty. 
And we, we did those, we performed those in the city for a very short little weekend-y type run. And people saw it and started talking about us in Chicago. It wasn't too long afterwards that the uh, Jane Addams Hall House became vacant and they asked, did you guys want to make a move? That was very scary for us because we were trying to see into being an equity theater, but we were just broke. And every time we tried to pay ourselves, we went further in debt. And so it was a big challenge. And, you know, people like Gary that were saying, we have to, we don't have a choice. We've got to go. We've got to have a bigger venue. We've got to be in the middle of things. And uh, so we did. Now, now, when did you start getting into the wearing the directing hat? Were you in the beginning? Were you guys all directing? Because I know you've directed a lot of plays. No, no, there were a few of us. Um, mostly in the beginning, H. E. Backus, uh, who was the first artistic director, he directed a lot, and I directed. I had directed in college a lot as well. I was always interested in directing as much as acting, and John Malkovich was a very fine director. So he uh, he did he did it as well. Other than that, people would dabble and they weren't really directors at heart. It was after we got to uh, Jane Adams Hall House that Gary said, and we were all very surprised that Gary wanted to direct. He just did not seem like a guy that was going to direct, which is funny to say now because he became our, our best director. Um, but he, uh, he asked us to do a midnight play of a crazy Sam Shepard piece called Action. And we did it at midnight and we got this, it was so unique that we got this cult audience that would dress like the characters <laughs> come every week. It was sort of like, a, uh, Rocky Horror, you know, and, uh, and, and Gary just, sort of took off after that, started directing more and more, became artistic director after a while, and uh, and came into his own as well. But yeah, no, it was always, it, it's, a, it's a company of highly talented, highly intelligent equals, but the decision-making always came from a few. We weren't a true proletariat. We... we we let democracy go so far and no further. We, we wanted someone to be in charge. We wanted there to be a vision, overriding vision. Now, as as the you know, you're you're all doing this. You're getting acclaimed now. You're 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 acting. You have it going. The theater's doing okay. When do you start to branch off and say you might want to do some TV? Was that something that was in your mind, or were you sitting there going, "We're theater guys, man. This is our this is what we do." We, we, we were theater guys. Um, we loved movies. Uh, going into the starting the theater, it was movies that we talked about when we first started fashioning our style in our in our heads. You know, we would talk about these movies that we just Gary and Jeff and I all loved, and it was Scarecrow. You know, with uh, Pacino and Hackman. God, we love that movie and saw it over and over. We saw A Woman Under the Influence, the Cassavetes film. 
and you know films like that that were just so raw you know that those those sensibilities so we didn't have aspirations to go out and be movie stars or television stars but the first thing that really happened there was Robert Altman came to town in 1978 while we were still in Highland Park and he heard about us. He said, I want the whole company to come in and one at a time interview with me for parts because I hear they're great. So, so we all went in. It was funny because I wore a three-piece suit. I thought you were supposed to, you know, <laughs> to go in for an interview like that. And I thought, I, I'm going to Obviously, I'm going to get a part, you know. Malkovich, you know, he was all dressed up like an English schoolboy. And um, we all came in there, and then Jeff shows up late. Jeff Perry shows up sort of late. He worked at a place called Egg Rolls, etc., at the Northbrook Court Mall. And uh, he had lettuce all over him and stains, and his hair was disheveled. And I said, what are you doing, man? What the hell are you trying to do? We're trying to represent us here. And he was like, oh, sorry, sorry. And so they call us in one at a time, and we're in there maybe three to five minutes. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, do you want to, maybe you'll be involved in non-speaking role, or we'll see what we got, you know? And we'd come out and go, I don't know, I don't know if I got anything. And then Jeff goes in, he's in there for 45 minutes. <laughs> in, his, in his lettuce T-shirt. And he got the part. He got a part. So Malkovich and one other guy, uh, uh, Tim Evans, and, and, and I got, came on as sort of regular extras. We were there every day of the filming. And it worked out because they all shot in the daytime and we did our theater at night and Altman accommodated us. And Jeff had a really nice part. He went on to do some other movies with Alan Rudolph, who was, you know, the protege of Altman. And so so he was getting his feet wet without without leaving us, per se. He kept saying, no, 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 this is where I belong. This, I, if, if it's going to conflict with the play, I'm not doing it. He turned down a couple of movies because of it. And then True West went to uh, New York. And, you know, as you might have heard, it was... It was kind of a phenomenon. It was, it was beyond anything that any of us had in mind. We, we were very mixed about it going. Gary was our artistic director, and we were going to lose him for a long time. John was essential to our, you know, group. So we didn't like them going to New York very much. Many of us were very much against it. And yet they brought this international fame to the name Steppenwolf, and then John just started getting movie after movie after movie. Now, uh, it wasn't long after that that we all started heading toward New York. We'd bring a play, and we'd stay. You know. Now, it's funny. Now, now I, I have a... Uh, I'm a Miami Vice fan. I interviewed Sandra Santiago of about six months ago, and I started watching all the old uh -huh. Miami Vices, and I saw you on one. Now, was that one of your uh -huh. first bigger TV spots? Because you had a very big part. Was that one of your first bigger, uh, that's one of your early TV spots, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. I, it might have been my first. I had this, I had this uh, champion in a casting director named Bonnie Timmerman, and she cast for Michael Mann. 
and he he uh, he listened to her, you know. So she just said, "You got to cast this guy," and I did get a, a good part. I was a fish out of water. I didn't know what I was doing. I was in a shiny suit, and I was I was too young to be playing a DA, but I was playing one, and, and it was really great to be in Miami and. They were so fancy, those guys. I, I just did you know, I didn't know how to talk to them. And, uh, yeah, so I did it. I don't remember much about it. But Bonnie Timmerman, you know, also then put me in Last of the Mohicans of, of, uh, of Michael's. So, so yeah, you get, you get champions in this business once in a while, and they, they tend to make careers. Now, what was your career like as you're starting to work more on TV? I know you were in a few episodes of 30-something and, you know, you, you know, other TV shows. What is that like when you're trying to balance your the theater? I mean, was it was the theater on hold for right then for you personally? It, it just never seemed to, um, it, never, it never seemed to interrupt in those ways. I would do a television show for a while and come back and direct a play and come back and act in a play. You know, I, I, I did Grapes of Rap for about two years, which I was already doing uh, film and television at the time, but, you know, you just sort of commit to the time flow. And it, it, was, it was a pretty good marriage, and, you know, back and forth like that for a long time. Eventually... I developed this sort of a strange, lingering uh, stage fright that uh, that caught me off guard, but made me incapable of doing uh, acting in plays. So I was still directing them, and yet I I love acting, and working in front of the camera doesn't make me nervous. I can sort of fall asleep in front of the camera, I think. And I, I, I like that process of camera acting a lot. So, uh, so eventually I, I became kind of 100% acting on television and film. And still, uh, my theater appetite was strong for directing. Now, you know, I've talked to musicians who have lost their voices, you know, and then they've gotten them back. And mm -hmm. as an actor, when you've been around theater for so long, when you get that stage fright, what goes through your mind? Are you sitting there going, this is psychological, or is it anxiety, or what was it? I just didn't. I couldn't put a handle on it. It was an all-encompassing uh, wave that became a kind of an anxiety disorder for a while. It started on that stage, and it started growing tentacles. And I, it was this period of fear. Ultimately, I knew it was psychological, but it was—it felt very physical. And um, to even do a reading, like a staged reading, or read for just a few people, like in in, in my theater company, like to this day, it creates the the, the feeling of the anxiety. It's not as intense. And it's not as chronic, but it's certainly something that still has a grip. Uh, so the source of it was, I believe, years and years of living it, just living it to the hilt and giving over my entire persona, my entire psychology to creating these portraits of other people. And 
uh, you know, I got into a dangerous role. That's what drove me off of the stage. It was a it was a very disturbed, very interior person, and I I had to go there quickly because I was replacing someone, and it I think it drove me a little bananas. Yeah. So so yeah, psychological, of course, but it's also you know it it, it feels like the flu. Now, when, where were you, when all this was going on earlier in your career, where were you living? Were you living still in Chicago and then going to New York or to L.A. if they need you for something? Or where were you living? No, when that all started, I, I was here in New York for quite some time. I moved to New York when we did Bomb and Gilead, and I came back and forth almost 50-50 between Chicago and New York for some years after that. But it was 1984. Uh, so I've been here in New York much longer than I was in Chicago even. Now, how did Oz come about? And it's so funny. That's one of those shows that when it was on, you know, HBO, not, it's not, it wasn't like today where everyone can get cable and everyone can stream it for like four bucks a week or a month. <laughs> Oz was such a good show and it was so different were you, did you audition for that part, or did they seek you out because you knew people involved, or how did that come about? No, I didn't audition. Um, I did an episode of Homicide uh, a couple of years before that, and Tom Fontana was, you know, was, was running the show, and it was supposed to be a very special episode, like uh, aired on a very special, on a special night, I don't know what situation was. But it was a part of an NRA, no, NSA, I'm sorry, uh, um, map maker who may or may not have murdered his father. And quite frankly, it was indecipherable. It was, the script was indecipherable, my performance was like reflective of how indecipherable. And Tom, I remember, said, you know, after it aired, sorry about that. That, you know, I shouldn't have let that happen. And I, I said, well, I, you know, I still had a good time being there. And I let it go. And then when he, he called me into his office one day and he said, I'm doing a 15 minute presentation for HBO of the first dramatic series ever on cable. So it was, was that. And I said, oh, well, well you know, 15 minutes, and he said, yeah, we're going to film it over three days, three or four days in Baltimore. And he said, you, and there was another, uh, there were other people that didn't make it to the series, so I, I, you know, I won't name them, but they were great. They were great, great actors. And um, so we did it, and it was, you know, I couldn't believe just how brutal it was for even that 15 minutes it was non-stop gore and just just sickening stuff and I said it's never going never gonna to make it and time passed and he called me and said it's going to be completely different than what we did but uh, I want you to be in it playing the same guy and then we'll figure it out from there so that, that's how it started I was I was I was the only guy uh, besides someone that was killed in that 15 minute thing that came back uh, to uh, to do uh, 
the actual sewers. Now, when you started doing it, because it, it was very gritty, you know, it's the thing. Did you think, did you in your back of mind think it was going to last as long as it did? I mean, I know actors never can tell if a movie's going to be a hit or a TV show is going to be a hit, but it was very gritty. And I don't think people were always prepared for that. It was very, it was a rough show. Did you think would you would be on as long as you would? Do you think it would stay around? I wasn't, I wasn't clear on that. I was just very clear that the sort of biblical proportions of it that Tom was 100% responsible for was so special and that the cast believed in it and in each other. We shot for 10 cents. We were handheld. We shot 10 to 12 pages a day, and we shot from 7 to 7 every day and never a minute over so it was on a strict budget and it was i felt like it could last because there's never been anything like it on television i remember always the first couple of years being so disappointed that more people weren't, weren't tuning in and when people would talk to me about it on the street they would say i can't take it i can't take it i'm sorry it's too sick I said, we well, should give it a chance because it's a great story as well. The Bible's pretty sickening. <laughs> you know, right. when you think about all the stuff that happens in that. Um, but it, it just, I believed in it. So, yes, I believed that it would take off. Little did I know, little did any of us know, that it would become so popular after the fact, after we were gone. Now, what was it like after that when you went to a shall we say, a regular production that wasn't shoestring, that wasn't handheld, that was just more of a big budget, let's say, a network show. Was that, did you feel a little out of place because you were probably so used to the shooting that you were going through? Yeah. Yeah, you know, to this day, you know, I directed Oz as well. And, um, and I loved doing it. And I was very confident with my colleagues, very confident with Tom. And we've stayed that way. We're, we still consider ourselves artistic partners and look for new things to do together. But um, once I went into a place with a dolly and a, you know, a, the camera was mounted, you know, on, on, on sticks or on the dolly and everything was smooth and everything was super slow and you're doing multiple takes and the lighting setups are taking... 45 minutes to an hour, I had very little patience for that. And um, that sort of remained. It's, it's not that I don't like a smoother, you know, beautiful shooting style. I, I, I do like it. I, I, know how to, I know how to act in that environment. But I think I would lose patience as a director there. I worked, however, last year on a, on a feature with Peter Berg, and boy, did it take me back to Oz. I mean, he was never on Oz. He never directed us on Oz, but it sure felt like he did. He, he does a very similar thing. He'll take a six-page scene, and you're out of the room in an hour and a half. Yeah, I, I, uh, I love his movie, um, Very Bad Things. Is that what it is? Oh, yeah. It's such oh, a yeah. dark, dark movie, and you watch it, but you're laughing. And that's when I, I mean, I had known him from Chicago uh, Hope, but then when I saw that, when I saw that movie, I was just like, oh, my God, that's just, that's what movie making should be. Absolutely. He's a 
mad scientist too. He wears a gamer's, I hope you wouldn't mind me telling this, but he, he wears a sort of a gamer's mask with several screens on it. I heard there were seven. He's got four handheld cameras positioned in the room to try not to get get in each other's way and get each other in the shot. Uh, he's got, therefore, a lot of very natural lighting. And he shouts orders over a speaker with a microphone from the monitors. So it's, it's like he's a a mad dictator while you're working, shouting, do it again, do it again, say it faster, say man, now I have lived. Now, and, you know, if you can do it, and I found myself, I think because of, uh, because of Steppenwolf, I found the, the playing, you know, like, switch it up, be angrier, be this, be that, taking that kind of direction in a, in a rapid fire fashion like that, I found it exhilarating. And, um, and so, yeah, it just it just felt so renewing, and I kept thinking, how does this not happen all the time? <laughs> how, how you know it's 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 got to we could move faster. We really could, and uh, sometimes I think we should. Now, as an actor who has directed, even though it was a lot of it was a theater, and you did a few things of Oz, how do you relate to a director when you're on set? Do you, you understand them more because you know what they're going through? Or do you just sit there and say, okay, today I'm an actor, I'm not directing a play? I don't ever... Uh, I don't put my director's cap on when I act. I, I love acting in and of itself. I like being directed a lot. I like being told things. I like being given tasks. Um do it this way, do it that way. The only thing I don't like, I think I, those things I don't like as an actor more than as a director. I don't like being told, this guy is this way. You know, those kind of generalized resulty notes. When, when, and quite often, you'll get in, a, in, in television, not, not overly often, but once in a while, you'll get shooters. You know, they, they were a former DP or doc maker, you know, that, uh, you know, bless them. They, they've got a skill set. But acting is not their yet, you know. So they tend to want to make it so. And I think if, if people like that let you do your thing, it's much better. Just like, do it again. You know, if they didn't like it, just do it again. As opposed to false direction, you know, the kind of like, I get the impression this guy's an angry guy, so maybe you should try it angrier. Well, I, I get lost. When someone does that, I do bristle. Now, as an actor, and I've talked to actors who've been around for a while, and how it's changed the whole shooting process, where now... It's like you you don't really don't have to act as much. I mean, someone can be a pretty guy, but the way digital is, they can cut everything together. Is that harder yeah. for you? Because you're a, you're a trained theater guy, and you and you know, and you've directed it and acted in theater, and you know that you you have to nail it, man. You can't just sit there and go two minutes and then go, oh shit, I I screwed up. Uh, How is that for you? Yeah. As, what is what do you you must go crazy on the set sometimes. You know, I do like the freedom of multiple, uh, of being able to go back and do it again. You know, I do, I do like that. It's not, 
it, it is it is cut and paste a little bit. It doesn't it doesn't have the form of the long form you know theater where your chops just have to uh, you know be in a well like if it was a film you'd be in a long shot all the time. Um, that's where you get your uh, the length and breadth of your of your skill set. Um, so yes, I know about it. I think I still have it, but I don't mind. I don't mind someone that can just sort of create on the spot, and they're not in general. They're not someone that could transfer to a stage. They are just purely the you know it's the way their face looks. It's some irregularity. It's some it's some quirk in their in their being. Um, I don't mind that stuff. It doesn't it doesn't bother me at all. But yeah, I when I see it, when I see that skill set and 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 get to experience it, it's noticeable. I just watched. I don't know. I'm so late to the game. This quarantine was a blessing in one way. Is that I ha- I sat down and I started watching all of these series that my daughter, who's a complete aficionado of you know, binging series. Uh, she said, you've got to see Mindhunter, you've got to see it. Why haven't you seen it? And I, just, I just don't watch stuff while I'm working. I just don't do it. And I did. I watched, in two days, I watched both seasons. And there was an actor, did you see it? No, my wife, it's so funny about when it came out, a friend of mine, Peter Mernick, was on a few episodes in the first season. And, mm-hmm. and my wife... Like I said, we got to watch this. And she goes, okay. And she kept pushing it off. She kept pushing it off. So then, like, about eight months ago, I come home one day, and I'm like, what are you watching? And she's like, Mindhunter. And I was like, I, I waited to watch it. She loved it. And I do have to go back and watch it, because she said it was just so good. Oh, it's it's ridiculously good. It's, it's form-changing. And, uh, you know, head and shoulders above so much that I think, but there's a particular performance by an actor named Cameron Britton. And, you know, I don't tend to, I love rock musicians, you know, and, you know, if I'm going to be a fan, it's of baseball players, it's of, um, it's of rock stars, not other actors. This doesn't happen. And this guy, goes places that I, well, for instance, and I'm not giving you any spoilers because you need to see it. He has a scene that I had to, it was probably midnight, I was alone in my kitchen watching it on a computer, and I had to turn it off and go outside for a minute because it was so good. It was so intense, and it was so disturbing that I knew I wasn't going to be able to continue if I didn't take a break. She's that good. Uh, but that, that, it is rife with those kind of performances. That show is, uh, I don't know, David Fincher. He's got something, some sort of special sauce. Now, you've been involved with a bunch of series. Um, what is it like when you, you know, you, you seem like you constantly work. Or do you get pretty much offers now, or are you still going into the audition process? How does it work for you? I, I usually... I think at this point, you know, I'm a fairly old guy. I, I uh, yeah, I get a lot of offers. Uh, 
I try to uh, I try to work out of just offers. But if there's something that I know is coming that I am wild to do, and that they're not going to let anybody in without an audition, and there are those projects. Uh, I just did one. I just did a movie, a Denzel Washington movie called Little Things. And when they said, you know, they want you to self-tape at home, but the thing is, everybody is. Well, Chris Bauer was in that, by the way. Um, and uh, so, you know, I said, oh, I'm not going to, you know, this is not my strong suit, you know. Uh, but I, I did it and I got in, so, so. I, I, I'm not opposed to the audition process if it's if it's going to be a meaningful experience in the long run. Now, now, what's your take? Because you don't audition a lot anymore, but a lot of uh, the actors have been around for a while don't really like self-taping. They like being mm-hmm. in the audition room because it's that, and it's usually guys who've done stage. That's the thing. They they like that interaction with the casting director, and they can get a part without you know as the casting director can see a. a tape and go, eh, but then in person you can add something to it. What's your what's your philosophy on uh, self-tape auditions? Are you a fan of it, or are you sort of like, nah, I'd rather be in the room? Well, obviously you always have a better chance in the room. Um, but there are so many people that are so good at that, it's almost like its own form, you know. There, there are people that will go in and just kill an audition, just be incredible. And then they'll show up to the set and they will do exactly what they did and they're not really capable of switching it at all. They, they just can do that thing, what they've got in mind already. Um, which is not to be smirched at. It's its own talent. Uh, however, I'm, I'm very on a set... I come in completely like, I like to call myself a perpetual amateur, and I I am one, because I like to come in with the state of not knowing, like, what do you need me to do? Where where do you see me sitting? What what do you think this, uh, the tension is between us and why? And, you know, I like to, I like to have it all happen in the room. So you would think I'd like that in the audition process. Audition processes don't work that way. You've got a few minutes to wow people. And in that respect, I find it false. I don't, I don't enjoy that part of it uh, because I'm too much of an introvert to show my whole self in a flash like that. Uh, on the other hand, when I have to do it, I go in and I do my best. Now, you're, is, Billions is starting up again soon, right? Yes, uh, it, it'll, it'll start airing next Sunday. They, 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 we're, we've been shooting, uh, I've only been in a few this year. Uh, they've, they've shot eight, and so I think we're still, we still have to do 9, 10, 11, and 12. And, uh, and they will air the first seven, uh, and if we catch up, you know, we'll just keep going. But if, if this puts us in, if it puts production in a pause until 2021 or whatever, uh, then 
said, I think there will be a pause in the middle of the series as well. Well, Billions has such a, a great cast and a talented cast. Yeah. As an actor, you know, I sometimes compare as, you know, like, because you're, you're a very talented actor and you go in with a cast of other actors. I think it's like, like a baseball player. You know, if you were going to play for the Yankees and their heyday, you know, you're coming on to with these all-stars, these heavy hitters, and it just must make it gel so good. Is that what you feel like when you go on a set with such a strong cast? Yeah, they are. They are are uniformly excellent. They are uniformly humble. And they're uniformly nice people. And it starts at the top with Brian Koppelman and David Levine. I mean, those guys are just menches and they sit off in the monitors. And I mean, we have to redo takes because they'll laugh at what you're doing so loudly, um, which is such a joy. But, you know, all of a sudden you're working with Eric Bogosian. All of a sudden, you know, David Costable is masterful. He is a masterful craftsperson. Maggie Sip and I did a play together in the off season. Um, you know, we're close. We're all pretty close. So it's a pleasure. It's not intimidating, but it's certainly a, a real pleasure to know that you've got to come prepared. If you come in not knowing your lines or whatever, they'll eat you a lot. I mean, they'll, they'll just make fun of you, first of all. But um, but they will, they will definitely, you know, they're not waiting around for you. Uh, so, so you just know that. You know you go in, you be ready to do something that you've, you know, prepared a lot to do. Now... You said earlier in the beginning of the interview you were working on something on Netflix. Was that Inventing Anna? Yes, it is, yes. Well, it's funny because I was looking at your resume. I looked up what Inventing Anna was, and I actually saw that. I love that show. One of my guilty pleasures is uh, American Greed. And they did an episode about her, and it was a fascinating story. Um, How far into that series did you guys get? Well, they are shooting it out of sequence in blocks of two episodes. So it's it's impossible to say how far we got because it's, I mean, it's a very long shoot. And um, each block is a very long shooting period. So, you know, we've done probably four and a half of the episodes or something like that. I, 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 I would be the last to know. Um, they call you in after like sometimes a month, sometimes a month and a half. And we have all one location, our characters. It's Jeff Perry. Luckily, I'm working with Jeff and Anna DeVere Smith as these sort of senior writers that are, you know, uh, banished to the back of the office, but then we can come in towards you to something in the main story. Um, and ultimately, you know, to have one location like that, you tend to shoot it out. So when we shoot, we shoot in chunks. But it is a completely all-over-the-map production. I mean, they shoot in the studio, they shoot in locations, they're going to other countries, and it's, it's big. It's a big, giant production. I think it's going to take a long time to finish. Now, as someone who's uh, done both the theater and TV and movies, how do you think the 
because of the coronavirus and this whole thing, how do you think those industries will change? Do you think that it will take a while for a theater to come back because of the distancing? And do you think like movies with the sets, how is a professional who's been in the business has done everything in it, you know, acting and you've directed, how do you think, it's, how do you think it's going to come back and how do you, how do you think it will change? I think gathering in, in large venues is, it's, it's a big question. How will stadium concerts happen? Again, as much as the president keeps saying, well, that's exactly, that's the American way and that's what we're going to do. It's until it's safe, there's absolutely no way to return to it. So before a vaccine is successful on this uh, virus, this particular virus, and we can get a pandemic team put back into place, et cetera, et cetera, and be prepared for the next go around, be prepared with enough you know, equipment. Uh, we're not going to return to normal. In South Korea, they started going back to the theater, as you know, and they were taking everybody's temperature if they came in. Well, that's step one. Social distancing, so every other seat, uh, and then in, no one in back of you, you know, they, they stagger those as well. I think that will probably be a way. So the re- reducing their revenue that way. They're going to have to reduce expenditure because of it. Um, But even that world of a revised version of gathering with social distancing is way out from, from right now. We'd love to believe that it could come back in the summer uh, when the curve goes down further, but it's not, it's not going to happen that way because it'll come back and come back twice as strong unless we eradicate it through changing our ways completely. Uh, so yeah, I think there's greater minds than mine working on it. I hope so. Um, but, um, but I do know that it will involve, um, making sure, you know, a test of some kind before you can enter the theater, uh, as an audience member or as an actor. It is crazy because I live in New Jersey, but I live right outside Philadelphia, and New Jersey has gotten it really bad. And it's just funny how the different the different views, you know, of you know people in New Jersey. You know, we know. You know, it, I mean, I live, I live, I said ten minutes from Philadelphia, and it's just funny how different people in New Jersey and New York are taking it so much more serious because we're smaller states, but we have huge numbers. And it, and it's sad for the fact, like you said, with concerts, because I had all these tickets to good concerts this summer. And I'm like, I can't go see oh, Chicago with Rick Springfield. God. I can't go this. And I'm like, right. oh. So, anyway. Devastating. Uh, it's devastating that, I mean, I go, to, I go to theater, and I see, you know, especially things that I usually will know somebody in the play, because it's expensive to see. But, but I go to concerts all the time. Music is, is very important to me. And so to, to not be able to go see a live band in a big room, well, I mean, that's, that, that's not life to me. It's, I know. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very uh, 
bleak outer space version of existence. Now, do you, uh, I'm going to ask you before we wrap up. Uh, you said you're you um you're using aren't fans of actors. You're fans of musicians. Who are some of the who are some of the musicians you're fans of? Oh uh, well, uh, right now, uh, my favorite. You know, I, I love Tom York. I love Tom York and Radiohead. Uh, I like him in his own act as well. Um, I love Damon Albarn and the Gorillas. Um, I like Waxahachie. She, she's a great singer. I like Y Oak, uh, another uh, two-person band that is just amazing. But I, you know, of course, I like you know, I like as I'm an older guy, I, I have I have my stuff I grew up with. I grew up with Hendrix and 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 stuff like that. But I just uh, I try to stay very current with the, especially the independent music scene. So I go to see bands that I hear on, like, uh, XMU, and, you know, I try to listen to the stations like that and go see those people play. Uh, and sometimes you just get really re- rewarded for it. You, you hear a band that I say, I'm going to see a band called Off from Montreal. And uh, they say, who? Keep my friends just go, who? <laughs> and, I, uh, and, and they're spectacular. You know, there's so many great, but the great band for me... Uh, I did a concert with my uh, partner colleague, uh, Rebecca Habel, uh, where we went to BAM in the Opera House for two nights in the Next Wave Festival, and I basically wrote a visual story that we had a graphic artist uh, uh, draw onto film, and a projection artist uh, animated it, and we had an incredible lighting designer, Ben Stanton, uh, that, you know, designed an incredible light show around it, was banned Other Lives out of, um, out of uh, Oklahoma, but now in Portland. And they just came out with a new album, and don't miss it. They are really special, and not enough people know about them. Uh, the first time I saw them, they backed up Radiohead, and that's how I, I first saw them, and then I, I started following them, really lucky enough to get them to collaborate with us for a very long time on this concert. It was two nights, and it was really something. It was very special. Well, that's awesome, man, Terry. I got to tell you, thank you so much for being a guest today. I, I am a fan of your work, and you know, as I said, you've been mentioned. I know I believe you, uh, you, um, you helped Chris Bauer a lot. You said you sort of helped him reinvent himself, and I know you had directed uh, Layla Robbins in something. She had mentioned that uh, when she was you doing some... streetcar with Gary Sinise and... Uh, Kate Irby and uh, and John Riley. Right, so it's just it's amazing. You have such a, a, a you know a connection to the business. Now I and now I know you're on Twitter. Do you are you do you tweet a lot? Yes, I, I mean I I do. You know I find that I'm you know sadly <laughs> I I uh, I don't I don't tend to tweet about any you know pro- self promotion. You know every once in a while I suppose, but you know I don't I don't tweet tweet about the arts enough. I I'm usually trolling uh, Donald Trump. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I go after him a lot, and uh, you know, and, and I, of course, I of course take the heat from his from his followers as well. Uh, but yeah, that that's why I tweet. And now you're is it at Terry Kitty? It's at uh, real Terry Kitty. Okay, 
Okay, well, anyway, people, go check out Terry's work, man. Just go Google him, you know, and go look at that Miami Vice. He's got sort of like the long hair in the back and the glasses. Oh, my God, the shiny shark skin suit. <laughs> and it's great, people. All so right. go check out Terry's work. Go follow him on Twitter, at Real Terry Kinney. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. Instagram, Cooper Talk One. My website, coopertalk.net. I have over 790 episodes. Email me, Cooper, at coopertalk.net. And do me a favor. I just started a page on Facebook. Well, I had one, but I never paid attention to it. Under Cooper Talk Radio. Go and like it. So once again, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.